Good morning. What happened to these chairs over here? Is there something on the seats? There's like this empty spot all over. That's kind of unusual. Well, it's good to see everybody in the house of the Lord this morning. And we're going to continue our study of the book of Proverbs. So you can turn your Bibles to Proverbs and maybe stick your finger in Proverbs chapter 16 to get us started. But we have been looking at Proverbs for our communion Sunday studies. And we've been finding basically Proverbs is a collection of or a compilation of ancient wisdom, sayings of the wise. And Proverbs is written to make people wise. And we have defined wisdom, according to Proverbs, as competence in regards to the realities of life. So Proverbs does a good job at laying out for us the realities of life and basically tries to encourage us to see them and live by them. And there are such a thing as realities or set principles in life because there is a real God who has put them there. And therefore, they are predictable and reliable. There are a lot of books that talk about wisdom. There are plenty of books that have been compiled and we can have fun reading the sayings of the wise. But the thing that makes Proverbs unique is that its, its emphasis is on God. And that Proverbs actually looks beyond the wisdom to the God of wisdom as personified in Jesus Christ. And so like, unlike other books, Proverbs really focuses on the Lord. As a matter of fact, not even including the references to the fear of the Lord, which is predominant in the book of Proverbs, God is mentioned no less than 100 times. So what we find when we if you're searching for wisdom, we're not just talking about data or intellectual abundance. Proverbs points us right to God and even says that to even that the starting point of wisdom is what the fear of the Lord. So, in other words, in order to have the right kind of wisdom, we have to look at anything and everything through the reality of the existence of God and his character and his life in our lives. So to help us be wise, Proverbs talks actually a lot about God. And if you were to take all of the sayings of God in the book of Proverbs, there's actually one overarching theme that emerges. And it talks about a God's character, talks about his ethical principles, uh, his personality, his wisdom and so forth. But if you were to take all of the scriptures and say, what does this teach us about God? The theme that is predominant actually is the sovereignty of God. Proverbs teaches us much about the sovereignty of God. We talked about that in Sunday school this morning. It was hard for me to sit quietly as uh, questions were asked about the sovereignty of God because I knew I was going to speak about it for our sermon today. But that's what we're going to examine. The sovereignty of God. When you look at it in the New Testament, Paul speaks or introduces us to the sovereignty of God, uh, God's electing powers, his calling powers in theological terms. What it means for us when it comes to salvation. Proverbs doesn't talk about it in the salvation or theological terms in that sense. Proverbs teaches us about the sovereignty of God in the everyday happenings of life. 
What does it mean for us in the everyday happenings of life? Not just that God elected us and called us and so forth, but as we take that step by step, I will follow you all the days of our life. Step by step, what does the sovereignty of God mean to us? And that's the approach that Proverbs takes. And basically it is looking at life or approaching every day with the reality that God exists. And so there, therefore, everything has meaning. Everything has significance. So it's not just a part of the equation of life, but God and his sovereignty is the equation of life. You know, whenever we talk about the sovereignty of God, our, it's easy for our minds to become boggled. Because sometimes we get boggled down uh, in trying to figure it all out. What does it mean that God is sovereign? And... What does it mean in my life and how far do I take it? How far do I look for meaning or how much do I look for meaning in everything? So on the way to church this morning, a bug splattered on my windshield. What's the what meaning do you have that in for me, God? I mean, how far do we take that? Um, We're going to we're going to read a proverb a little later that basically tells us we really can't get it all. It's just God is too unfathomable and our finite minds can't grasp it. And it's not there for us to be bogged down trying to find meaning in every little, though God is in everything, absolutely every molecule and every second of existence. We just can't grasp it. And that's okay. Proverbs is going to say you can't do it. Um, the, I guess my bottom line in wrestling with the sovereignty of God over the years is... I guess I might state it as this. I don't understand or comprehend the sovereignty of God 100%. But I trust in God 100% and God is sovereign. It's just another way to look at it or another way to state it. So I don't, I don't comprehend the sovereignty of God 100%, but I trust in God 100%. And Scripture tells us that God is sovereign. So we're going to consider verses on God's sovereignty this morning. Also, I'm going to uh, read several quotes, a little more than usual, just to let you know, because this is a subject that I want to try to bring in all the wisdom outside sources as I can to help us grasp it. But I hope that as I read these verses, and it's about a dozen or so random verses in the book of Proverbs, I hope that you just marvel at God as much as I do when I think about the significance of these verses. We'll start in chapter 16. Verse one, the plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit. Commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Verse nine, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Verse 33, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Then verse uh, chapter 19, verse 21, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Then to chapter 20, 24. A man's steps are from the Lord. How then can man understand his way? There's the verse about we're just not going to get it all the way completely. And then 21.1, we've read this. 
before it. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. And then chapter 21, 30 and 31. No wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. I think when you look at this compilation of scriptures, there's two things that stand out. Basically, it's showing us that uh, man has powers, man does things, but he's limited. And then it, it compares the limitations of what man can do with the divine abilities that God has. And there's nothing that God can't do. So there's a, there's a contrast there, limit, the human limitations against God's divine abilities. So people can do things, we plan, we strive, we work, uh, and we accomplish things. But we're limited in what we are able to do. And God, in the end, somehow, mysteriously, ultimately determines the final result. Charles Bridges says, man proposes, God disposes. Perhaps you've heard that before. Man proposes and God disposes. So God knows more than we do, but he also, according to Proverbs, has the final word in things. He has this authoritative tongue, if you will. And so we, we make our plans and we have our thoughts that we're trying to bend. We're trying to bend things our way. Manipulate things our way with our plans and our efforts and our passions and our desires. And yet God has the final work. He speaks authoritatively into all things. And there's really a sense in which all of creation is waiting for his next word for existence because he he rules over all things sovereignly. I like Isaiah 55 verses 10 through 11. Again, another very familiar passage. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So you can see in. Proverbs 16, 1, it says the plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. Man makes the plans, but final approval comes from God, the sovereign God. And God's word never misses its mark. It, it always the intended purpose of what God wills and what God speaks always finds its Mark. God is very, very active in all the affairs of man and all the affairs of this world. He is active and sovereignly ruling over every conceivable sphere, things that we don't even think about, that we that don't even come to our minds. So God is very active. Now, Proverbs makes it clear that man is active, too. Right. I mean, we're, we're working, we're striving. We're here this morning. We have plans. We have things that we want to do while we're at church. And then after church, we've got a list of things to do this week. We've got plenty of things that people are going to ask us to do or tell us to do this week that we don't even know about. We're thinking hard to try to bring our plans into place. God's sovereignty does not equal man's passivity. 
Some might say, well, if God gets the final word, why should I do anything? You'll never see in Scripture where God... Now, he, there is the be still and know that I am God, but, but that's just um, keeping a perspective in our activity. It's not a passivity. But in Scripture, you just there's all these action verbs. It's seeking, finding, following, making every effort, laboring for the Lord. So... There, there is activity on man's part. We are to keep doing and keep striving and keep planning, but with a dependence upon the sovereignty of God. God doesn't work without us. So within the realm of the sovereignty of God doesn't mean that he does everything and we just sit on the sidelines. The sovereignty of God is that he works in us. He works through us. He works by us. Those prepositional phrases that speak of the relationship that we have with God and what it means to be in Christ. So it doesn't mean that God just does all the work. It means that he does his work in us and through us and by us. Bishop Reynolds says the work as it is a duty is ours, but as a performance, it is God's. He gives what he requires and his promises are the foundation of our performances. And that's why when you read the New Testament, you you see the Apostle Paul, this little fireball of an evangelist who just defies death and goes wherever God calls him to go. And and he's the one that feels the beatings and he has suffered for his his work. Uh, He has toiled. He was a tent maker as he preached the gospel. So he's putting all this effort into life. But then he makes these comments like it's all God. It's, it's not me, it's Christ in me. How can he say that? It's because he realizes that the final, um, the final performance is from the grace of God. It's, he's been under the influence of the grace of God the whole time. So it's, it's not just him. These promptings are coming from God. And we talked about the stewardship of God's grace in Sunday school this morning. So that's why he can just, he can be the one that seems like he's doing all the work. And yet he just says, all oh, the glory is God. It's, it's not me, it's Christ in me. It's because of the providence of God and the hand of God that is working in every realm. And it's this understanding and it's this reality of life that Proverbs says, this makes you smart. Knowing this about God makes you a wise person. It helps you to make the decisions you need to make in life. It helps you to know when you should, should be concerned about certain things and when that they're not. God did not put them in your control and therefore you should not be concerned about them and make you uh, they should not bog you down. Personally, for me, the sovereignty of God is just good news. Because it, it, it actually um, can stress some people out. But for me, it's it's the uh, it's like a bench along the path that God has set like a park bench. Because we're striving to, to know God. We're striving to walk in his will. And God is saying, I'm working there. I'm in you and I'm with you. And sometimes if we think it's all us, we get exhausted. If we think it's all on our own shoulders. And so for me, the sovereignty of God is like sitting down on a park bench and taking a break and say, God, you got this. It's, it, you're, you're the one that knows where my ne- I'm going to take my next step. You know who's going to cross my path. You know tomorrow. You know the, the, the future. And it's all under your control. And it's not an excuse not to work or to do the wrong thing. It's a great comfort. It's meant to be a great comfort to believers. 
that God knows that we're not God. And God knows that we we can't control everything. There's just no way we can foresee all these things only in the movies. And so God says, I've got you covered. I know about that. I know about the things that you you don't even know about yet. And I have those covered as well. Just keep walking the path and keep seeking after me. So I find it as personally a great, great relief. And we have this assurance from God that if you're seeking me and you're walking according to my revealed word, yes, even with your flaws, but your heart is seeking me, you're going to land in the right place. I like the fact I think perhaps the most comforting is that it's not up to me. How would to me, it's relieving that the responsibility in the end, the responsibility of my life, because Christ has now entered into a covenant relationship with me. I am not alone. And before Christ, um, basically what I did with my life is made a mess out of it. I mean, you could bring good things into my life. I just mess them up because of my sin nature. I'd break trust or whatever, whatever it was. I was raised in a, a very loving household, and I took advantage of that. I was ungrateful. I mean, just I just messed the good things that were brought up in my life. And I like knowing that God is there for me and that, that God's going to direct this crazy heart that I have. And he's going to sanctify it for me. God, God works alongside our plans and, when necessary, overrides our plans. For his glory. We can trust that God has us covered. I was recently reminded about a statement that R.C. Sproul once made. uh, When he was talking to young single students. He was asked about the great question about, you know, how do we know who we should marry? The thing that's on a lot of young people's mind. And he said something to the effect, it doesn't matter. What matters is that you're seeking God. What do you do with that? When you're single, maybe you're lonely and you want to know what God has for you in your life. And this great theologian said, and you say, how do I know who to marry? I want to make sure I I pick the right one and, and start the right kind of life. And he said, it doesn't matter. What matters is that you seek God. What he's getting at is that. We, we are to be obsessed if, with anything. If we're obsessed with anything, it needs to be loving God and, and seeking God. And he needs to stay the center of our lives. And what God promises that he'll do is that he's going to bring, if it's his will, he's going to bring the person you're going to cross paths with that person. According to God's timing, he'll bring it to pass. So it's not that he, he says, just stay at home. Don't even go outside the house and God will bring somebody to you. No, you keep seeking, you keep living for the Lord, and it just happens. I mean, look at our testimonies. I think that that has to be everybody, everybody's testimony in here that's even married. That God crossed your paths. And a lot of, for a lot of people, unexpectedly. I didn't see Lisa coming into my life all growing up. I didn't even know her. And, but when I started to seek God, she sought God long before me. But when I began to seek God and pray to God about that aspect of my life, what did he do? He ordained, providentially ordained the circumstances to where we would meet. And that's the rest of the story. Now we have kids. I don't know how that happens. So it's this idea of trusting in the sovereignty of God. We're being proactive, seeking his glory for our lives.
And some conclude, well, if God gets the final word, then we don't really have a say in what we do, do we? And I would call that a wrong conclusion to what God's word. That's that's man's wisdom running off on his own, trying to make sense out of this. And I think drawing a wrong conclusion that doesn't really matter what we do because God's sovereign. Find that in the scriptures. You're not going to find that in the scriptures. And there's no again, it's not an excuse to be passive. Um, And it doesn't mean that we don't have a free will and that we're not making real decisions in real life and that we're not accountable for these. We are absolutely accountable for those. But what scripture teaches is that God determines or he establishes or he directs human steps without destroying human responsibility or human freedom. Now, that's the mystery. That's the paradox of the sovereignty of God. He he influences us divinely without destroying our human freedom. Therefore, that's why we're responsible for every choice we make. But just because we're responsible for everything we make doesn't mean that God is not sovereignly influencing. There's a lot of things in this world that influence them, influence us, and God is one of those. So he exerts his influence in such a way, even periodically overruling human endeavors, that he guarantees the ultimate achievement of his purpose. Even in spite of, whether through or in spite of, human intentions. Jeremiah 10.23 says, I know, O Lord. That the way of man is not in himself, that it is not in man who walks to direct his steps. And it's it's another way of saying Jeremiah is saying, God, I know like I'm making these decisions and I'm, I'm walking in a certain direction. But I'm I'm really seeing that you're guiding all of these things, that you're bringing all of these things to pass. That your sovereign hand is over. So man is walking. God is directing. And man is responsible for how he walks. We're rewarded based on our obedience and we're chastised based on our disobedience. And that's why um, Proverbs 16, 3 can say, commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. How can God say that if he is not going to influence these kind of things? It's not just left to man. He doesn't say, notice he doesn't say, abandon your plans. They don't do you any good. I got this covered and I'm going to get my will regardless of what you say. So just abandon your plans, crumple up that paper, throw it in the trash can. He doesn't say abandon your plans. He says, commit your work to the Lord. Commit your plans to the Lord and they will be established. So it's coming up with plans. It's thinking hard and trying hard. But it's having God in the plans. It's making the plans according to God's revealed will. And there is that assurance that God will establish those. As he works in us and through us. Charles Bridges says in all you do, seek the Lord's strength and guidance. Look to him for success in everything. Put your deeds as you would put your children with confidence into God's hands. Let your heart as a matter of habit turn to the throne of of grace. So when we commit our as believers, we commit our plans to the Lord. We are absolutely assured of divine guidance. We are we are assured that as children of God, we are on the divine course that God has set for us. We may not always feel it. We may not always be aware of God's presence. Sometimes God makes it very evident and we're and, and we're like, that was God. And other times we're like, where are you, God? 
But he, he's, he's the same God and he's always there and he's, he's just working out his will. Whether we recognize it or not, he's directing and adjusting our plans on a daily basis to see that they reach their desired end. And he's doing that because we are putting them under his management. We're giving him permission to do that. Alexander Knox says, let us through divine grace only keep within the circle where these movements are carried on. And we need not doubt that though we see nothing remarkable in our course, an unseen hand is directing every circumstance. So as in the most effectual manner to avert what might hurt us and to ensure what will benefit us and to direct all our concerns to the best possible issue. That's the sovereignty of God. That's what we can rest in. A popular question that pops into our minds and it popped into our minds this morning in Sunday school is, okay, if God is sovereign and the outworking of his plan is always in place and God is holy and he's just and where does evil come in? How can the two coexist? It seems antithetical. What scripture says in verse four, the Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. So even wickedness, even evil is is um, according to God's plan. There's a purpose for it in the world. We'll never know all the reasons why God allows things. We just never will. And I know our minds. God created us curious and he created us to, to know things and realities. And we we should want to know those things. But there's some things that are just going to remain a mystery. Why did this happen? And why did this not happen? But the scriptures make it clear that everything has a purpose, even the wicked. It doesn't say that it's not evil or it's not sinful. It's, it recognizes that it's wrong and it's bad and it's evil. But it just says that, that God uses it for his glory. It's just another thing. All things were created for the glory of God. And even evil and wickedness is just something that God is so incredible that he can turn to make himself look wonderful through it all. Something that he can bring glory for himself. Here's one way that scripture teaches us that evil brings glory to God. And it's the way he punishes it. I mean, who doesn't want justice? Who doesn't want to see the evildoer brought, punished and brought to justice? It's a part of our makeup. And just like in the movies where the good guy wearing the white finally catches up to the black guy. The, the, the bad guy wearing black. I could get in big trouble for saying that in this day and age. Forgive me, Lord. Um, so the, the good guy in white catches up to the bad guy in black. He captures him. He bounds him. He shoots him. Or he, take, he turns him over to the judge, whatever. And we're all in the movie theater watching TV. And we're, we're just so excited that finally that dirty, stinking rat got caught for what he's been doing and the havoc that he's been causing. There, there's great praise for that. That's what God does. He brings evildoers to justice, and as a result, he gets praised and glorified for it. As a matter of fact, we see this in Revelation 19, the first four verses. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven. What's the loud voice saying or doing? They're crying out, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. 
And once more, they cried out, hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. It's a scene. It's a glimpse of heaven in Revelation. And, and evildoers, evil creatures are burning for their sins and their offenses against God. And the people of God are rejoicing in this because it will be no more. God has has um, he has displayed the scales of justice. And they will no longer feel the sting and the stench of that evil. Evil is our enemy and, and our hero has crushed the enemy. He's freed us from the grip of the enemy. And the evil creatures. So punishing and overcoming evil is a great accomplishment. And God gets glory for it. Uh, one commentator says, God made man neither to save nor damn him, but for his own glory. And it is secured whether in his salvation or damnation. See, God gets glory either way, either direction we take. Nor did, nor does God make man wicked. He made man upright. Man makes himself wicked. And being so, God may justly appoint him to damnation for his wickedness, in which he glorifies his justice. So the punishment of evildoers is just another excuse to praise God for his justice, his fairness, his goodness. So the Lord even includes the wicked who are opposed to him. In his plans as a way to glorify him. Another way that God uses evil to glorify himself is in his patience. And this was brought up this morning as well. Peter reminds us that second Peter three, nine, that, that God is patience and some patient. We, we sometimes we think, God, why don't you bring this person to justice? Why don't you stop this? And we would put a quick end to it. And because of his patience, because he wishes that none would perish an outpouring of love and mercy Now, to get this straight. There's an outpouring of love and mercy that is enduring the offenses against him. For the sake and the hope of salvation. That's just pure mercy and love. It's, it's a display. God is long suffering. We would long ago have put the axe down. And God is. In enduring these things. What a beautiful thing. And we talked about this morning. The Apostle Paul said that his wickedness is God's example of the gospel. Because you look at the Apostle Paul and you say, you used to kill Christians. I mean, you drugged them before the courts. You bound them in chains. You couldn't be any more against God than the Apostle Paul. And he says that's a manifestation of God's grace. His life brings hope to others that have been so wicked against God because what it communicates is if you will save a wretched sinner like this who calls himself the chief of sinners, maybe my life has hope too. And it does. And it does. Because on the great scales of justice, what does God do in the gospel of Christ? But he takes the righteous blood of Christ and he puts it on the scale and he balances out. So that our punishment has been paid by the righteous blood of Christ. And those that put their faith in Christ can be saved because the righteous live by faith. What a beautiful display. And of course, at the at the cross, it, evil and goodness come face to face. And God uses the evil 
and the brutality of the cross to bring about the love and the salvation and the grace. Everything was made by God and for God, for by him and all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, Colossians 1.16. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He's the judge. And he is so wise that he has the ability to even judge and assess us better than we do. And we read Corinthians, I believe it was one, where it talks about who knows the thoughts of man, but the heart of man. We, own, we know our thoughts better than everybody else. But we don't even know our thoughts as well as God. And he goes on to say, who can comprehend God but the Spirit of God? Verse 2 reminds us, all the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the Spirit. How many people really think they're going to hell? Now, we like to joke about it, and we like to use, put that in our vocabulary, of cuss words, and, and it sounds real tough to talk about hell sometimes, and, and you'll still see uh, people say, I'll see you in hell, and it just... Man, it feels so powerful to say those kind of things. How many people really think in their own minds that that's where they're going? Most of us, I would say very few. Most of us, when we judge ourselves and we look at our lives, uh, we think we're pretty good. We don't find ourselves as guilty as we really are. We compare ourselves to each other. We, we can really only judge each other based on our acts. And you go to jails and into jails or prisons and you ask how many people are innocent. Most of them are innocent. We, we deny the realities in our own minds of our own sin. We, we suppress the truth, Romans tells us. That's our inclination or our proclivity to suppress the truth. Deny these things about ourselves. And yet God even separating bone from marrow, he, he examines our hearts. We look at ourselves and we'll look in the mirror and we'll think, you know, I'm not so bad. I'm not so bad. And God looks at us and he sees an abundance of corruption. Because he doesn't just judge by the external acts. He knows every thought that we have ever had that's offensive to him. Every little nuance of evil that has passed through our hearts and minds. There's corruption that we excuse ourselves from or that we suppress. And Romans says we exchange the truth for a lie if we let it go far enough without Christ and the light of Christ. The law shows us our sin. That's how wise God is. He's weighing the spirit. And God's natural revelation, it, it shows us that we are guilty and it shows us our sin, but only the gospel saves us from those sins. I like the way God uses the law to, to show us, you're a liar. You're an adulterer. But that doesn't save us. The knowledge that we're a sinner, it's the gospel that saves us. It's the grace of God that redeems us from the reality of our sin. It is the power of God that we do not possess in and of ourselves. I recently read, and I have... And I'm not going to read it this morning, though I'm very tempted, but it was a uh, excerpt out of World Magazine from Rosaria Butter, Butterfield, 
who is a believer, but at one time was a staunch liberal, I think at Stanford University and lesbian. God, through his sovereign hand, that's why I wanted to read it, because it's a beautiful story of how God brought certain things into our lives, into our life to change your heart. But she read Romans and, and, and saw where her lifestyle was offensive to God and she had and she felt convicted over it. But she goes on to explain how it is the gospel of God that was able to make her change her heart. See, we can see our sin, but only God can change our heart. And that's why we need to repent of our sins and believe in the gospel. I will read this little bit. Through the power of the gospel, it became clear that God's provision of salvation required that I understand from his point of view a biblical sexual ethic. Because God and Jesus Christ was my savior and friend, I realized that I needed to take the time to really get to know him. I needed to steep myself in the means of grace and wean myself from the world. And God used natural revelation to reveal my sin in this way. And my knee-jerk response to creation ordinances revealed to me that I was resistant to knowing God. And that was sin. So I committed myself to study these ordinances. It became clear that marriage between a man and a woman was by God's design. Natural revelation told me what God required. But without the gospel grace, I could no more live out these Christian ethics than I could walk on water. We need the grace of God to live for God. Well, as we wind down, here's another verse I want to look at. And that is the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord he turns it wherever he will. It's another picture of the sovereignty of God. What is he saying? It's a picture of the system of irrigation in that day. They, they dug canals. They didn't have sprinklers and so forth like we do. They had to dig trenches so that the, they could guide the water to the field that they wanted the water to go to so it could produce the fruit that they wanted to. And what God is saying is that inside of man's heart, and we looked at this as well, but there's ideas and aspirations that just gush forth. Plans that just gush forth things that we want in life. And out of these king's hearts, there are plans that are gushing forth. Decisions are being made. And God is saying, I, I rule over all of that. And what I'm doing is I'm, I'm taking the ideas of these kings and their own personal aspirations. And I'm guiding them where I want them applied. And we've seen this in Ezra and Nehemiah. That you have pagan kings. That are actually bringing forth the will of God by assisting God's people to go back to the land. That's how powerful God is. That even the evil cooperate with the will of God and the plan of God. So as we let this steep in our minds and think, scratch our heads and wonder, will I ever figure it out? And what does this mean for me? And. Should we scramble over every little circumstance and try to figure out the meaning of, that God has for us in that? that? It's not intended to bog us down with all those details. It's intended to bring us great comfort. It's intended to encourage us to keep striving because it's basically the promise that when you're seeking God, and you pick your foot up and you put it down, you're on that divine course. You don't have to understand it all. It's trust and it's faith. A man's steps are from the Lord. How then can man understand his ways? No one understands fully the meaning and significance of what he experiences. But God is the God of all comfort. So we want to keep seeking God, keep striving after God. And that's how we can be assured that we are on his path. That's the promise that he has for us. And so that's our reality, the sovereignty of God. 
And we are governed by that. And I encourage us all to commit our plans to the Lord. Seek God. What does God's word say about this? And, and even the things that we're not sure about, commit them to the, to the sovereign hands of God. And watch God work in a way that he, only he can. He's governing our lives. He's governing this church. He's governing this community. He's governing this nation. He's governing this world. And I take great comfort in the fact that God is in charge and I'm not in charge. And no offense, I take great comfort in the fact that you're not in charge. Or any other king or ruler of this world. But that God is in charge. So I don't comprehend it 100%, but I trust God 100%. God is sovereign. That's my reality. And because of this reality, he is worthy of our praise. So we're going to spend some time in expressing our adoration to the Lord in worship. May God bless the preaching of his word.